We get it. You're busy. You don't have time to waste on the mainstream media. That's why Salem News Channel is here. We have hosts worth watching, actually discussing the topics that matter. Andrew Wilkow, Dinesh D'Souza, Brandon Tatum, and more. Open debate and free speech you won't find anywhere else. We're not like the other guys. We're Salem News Channel. Watch anytime on any screen for free 24-7 at snc.tv. And on Local Now, Channel 525. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Georgine Rice Show on this Thursday afternoon. Seven minutes after four o'clock is our time. James Blend is producing today's program. Clark Hilton is engineering. Today we're going to talk with Charles Krismeyer. He's the author of Hearts of the Fathers, Leaving a Legacy That Lasts. We'll also talk in the five o'clock hour with Justin Farrell. He's a speaker, counselor, and an author. He, along with Better Dads, they're... uh, Sponsoring She's My Girl, He's My Dad. It's a one-day conference coming up later this month at Camp Whittacombe. We'll tell you more about that when he joins me in the 5 o'clock hour today. But do make note of the date. And by the way, if you can't wait, you can go to their website, betterdads.net, for all of the important details. And by the way, we'll be giving away our final collection of Stephen Curtis Chapman swag. We have his autobiography and two tickets to his acoustic Christmas concert that's coming to the Portland area, well, Christmas time. So we'll give you all those details when the time comes as well. First, a few of the day's headlines. In a major win for the Trump administration, the Supreme Court issued an order late yesterday ending all injunctions that had blocked the White House ban on asylum for anyone trying to enter the country via a third country, such as Mexico, without seeking protection there. The Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals, long a liberal bastion that's been aggressively reshaped into a more moderate court by the Trump administration, handed the White House a partial victory in the case on Monday by ending the nationwide injunction against the asylum policy. However, the Ninth kept the injunction alive within the territorial boundaries of the circuit, which of course includes Oregon and Washington. The Supreme Court's order was not a final ruling on the policy's merits, but it does allow the policy to take effect nationwide, including in the Ninth Circuit, while the case makes its way through the lower courts. And tonight's Democratic presidential primary debate uh, is uh, taking place in Houston with a less than Texas sized lineup. The group is much smaller this time around, slashed in half after numerous candidates failed to attract enough donors or support in the polls. Unlike the two night um, 20 candidate showdown in July, just 10 candidates will face off on a single night. They are former Vice President Joe Biden, Senator Cory Booker, Pete Buttigieg, Julian Castro, Kamala Harris. Amy Klobuchar, Beto O'Rourke, Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren, and Andrew Yang. That means for the first time, all the top contenders will face off in a three-hour showdown. And in an effort to curb teen vaping, President Trump on Wednesday said his administration is looking to ban all non-tobacco-flavored e-cigarette products. Health and Human Service Secretary Alex Azar told reporters at the White House that officials with the Food and Drug Administration are going to create guidelines on the ban, a process that could take months. The proposed ban comes as cases of vaping-related lung illnesses have surged in recent weeks. Health officials recently said there's now more than 450 possible cases across 33 states. At least six people have died. The most recent death was reported in Kansas. And the president announced late yesterday that the U.S. will delay a planned tariff increase of $250 billion worth of Chinese goods for two weeks. At the request of the vice premier of China, Liu He, 
And due to the fact that the People's Republic of China will be celebrating their 70th anniversary on the 1st of October, we have agreed as a gesture of goodwill to move the increased tariffs on $250 billion worth of goods, 25% to 30% from October 1st to October 15th, he wrote on Twitter. Wednesday's announcement came uh, 10 days after the U.S. imposed 15% tariffs on about $115 billion of Chinese imports, the latest salvos in an ongoing trade war between Washington and Beijing. And the NC2A warned California Governor Gavin Newsom on Wednesday that allowing college athletes to profit from their name, image, and likeness would be unconstitutional and would upend the balance of college sports in a letter asking him to reject the passage of a state bill that would make it easier for players to make money. The state assembly on Monday voted 72 to 0 to pass the bill, which is championed by many athletes in the collegiate and professional ranks, such as LeBron James. The state Senate passed the measure Wednesday, 39 to 0. California is home to 58 NC2A member schools, uh, the NC2A said, including powerhouse programs at USC, Stanford and UCLA. Newsom has 30 days to sign or veto the legislation. If he does nothing, the bill becomes law. When it says it's uh, contrary to the Constitution, that referring to the rules that govern NC2A sports. Attorneys representing more than 2,000 local governments, Native American tribes, hospitals and unions have reached a tentative settlement with uh, Purdue Pharma, with the OxyContin maker being held partially responsible for the nation's ongoing opiate epidemic. The pharmaceutical giant agreed to a deal after months of negotiation uh, negotiations that had been proposed weeks ago, according to attorney Paul Farrell. Under terms of the settlement, the Sackler family will relinquish control over the Stamford, Connecticut-based company, which has agreed to pay more than $12 billion in damages over a still unspecified period of time, according to sources close to the situation. About $3 billion of that $12 billion uh, settlement will come directly from the Sackler family's personal wealth. And the Senate confirmed President Trump's 150th judicial nominee on Wednesday, helping to fulfill the president's campaign promise to remake the federal bench with a conservative bent. Judiciary Committee Chairman Lindsey Graham called the number of confirmations an historic milestone. These conservative judicial appointees will impact our nation for years to come, the South Carolina Republican uh, said. Well, the Trump administration is officially rolling back an Obama-era environmental uh, rule that threatened farmers and other landowners with significant fines or jail time if they fail to comply with onerous regulations on waterways. The Clean Water Rule, more commonly referred to as the Waters of the U.S. Rule, or WOTUS, was finalized by the Obama administration in 2015. The rule attempted to clarify which waters were subject to the regulations of the Clean Air Act, but in many cases ended up confusing landowners even further. Senator Tom Cotton, Republican out of Arkansas, and Representative Mark Meadows introduced legislation Wednesday to end nationwide injunctions after a California judge took action to stop a change in the Trump administration's asylum policy from going into effect. The legislation, titled the Nationwide Injunction Abuse Prevention Act, would prevent individual district court judges from issuing nationwide halts to new policies. And 145 CEOs have implored Senate leaders to act on gun violence, saying doing nothing is simply unacceptable. And U.S. President Donald Trump on Wednesday called on the boneheads at the Federal Reserve, that's his choice of word, uh, to push interest rates down into negative territory, a move reluctantly used by other world central banks to battle weak economic growth that risks punishing savers and banks' earnings in the process. 
And on this day in 2018, the Food and Drug Administration warns that the use of e-cigarettes by teens is an epidemic and orders manufacturers to take steps to reverse the trend. On this day in 1959, the Soviet Union launches the Luna 2 space probe, which makes a crash landing on the moon. On this day in 1962, in a speech at Rice University in Houston, President John F. Kennedy reaffirms his support for the manned space program, declaring, We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. On this day in 1987, reports surfaced that Democratic presidential candidate Joe Biden borrowed without attribution passages of a speech by British Labor Party leader Neil Kinnock. For one of his own campaign speeches, the Kinnock report, along with other damaging revelations, would prompt Biden to drop his White House bid. And finally, in 1992, on this day, the space shuttle Endeavour blasts off, carrying with it Mark Lee and Jan Davis, the first married couple in space, Mae Jemison, the first black woman in space, and Mamoru Mahuri, the first Japanese national to fly on a U.S. spaceship. By the way, YouGov has both at um, uh, Joe Biden and uh, Senator Warren tied at 26 percent. Um, an ABC News Washington Post poll has Biden at 27 percent, Sanders at 19 and uh, Warren at 17. One poll has Sanders leading in New Hampshire. Meanwhile, Harris is having an obvious problem with honesty. Well, all of that coming to the surface in a debate tonight among the Democrats. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. About 21 minutes after 4 o'clock is our time. Later this hour, we'll talk with uh, Charles Krismeyer. He's the author of Hearts of the Fathers, Leaving a Legacy That Lasts. Well, ahead of tonight's Democratic primary debate in Houston, 2020 candidate and former Representative John Delaney, Democrat out of Maryland, unleashed on his primary opponents, declaring the race to be wide open. Our top three contenders, based on polling, he says, I think are all vulnerable for different reasons. And I think tonight they're going to have to address those vulnerabilities. Well, Delaney drilled down on the two leading candidates who are seen to lean furthest to the left. I think he went on to say, with respect to Senator Sanders and Senator Warren, they're fundamentally running on a bunch of ideas that a majority of American people don't support. And that's a huge problem for the general election. People are talking about giving people a thousand dollars a month, which would double overnight all federal spending. So some of this stuff, you wonder actually who comes up with these ideas. He was referencing Democratic candidate Andrew Yang. Uh, who had proposed giving every American citizen a guaranteed income. Thomas Del Beccaro, former California Republican Party chairman and Forbes contributor, believes the problem runs deep. Uh, it's not uh, if it's when socialism, you can't go double spending and not see socialism in sight. The government is already 37 percent of the economy. You push it above 50 to 55 percent. Then you start heading to where France is. And by the way, Greece is a short flight away. Former Vice President Joe Biden also did not escape the uh, criticism of his opponent uh, for the vice president, who I have deep respect for. I don't think he has put forth the uh, kind of ideas that the Democratic Party is looking for, Delaney said, adding that he believes that he is the best candidate. What I think we want is a paradigm idealist, um, someone who actually has big ideas but can show the American people how they can get things done. Unfortunately for Delaney, he failed to qualify to appear at this third Democratic presidential debate in Houston 
tonight. Meanwhile, the Biden campaign previewed its debate strategy for tonight by making at least two things clear. The former vice president will reject efforts to cast him as an incremental moderate, and he'll call on his rivals to do more than just wave around an arsenal of policy proposals. The vice president will argue we need more than just plans. We need action. We need progress. A senior Biden campaign official said today, this race is not just about plans. It's about getting things done for people. Well, the comments came during a briefing with reporters on the sidelines of the debate in Houston, and they amounted to an implicit swipe at surging Senator Warren, uh, who is best known for her reams of plans. The Massachusetts senator published yet another of those plans on Thursday morning focused on Social Security. The dynamic between the two rivals could be the main attraction, as this is the first time Warren has been on the same stage with Biden in his Democratic primary cycle. With the criteria tightened for this, the third debate matchup uh, among the Democrat candidates, um, only the 10 top polling contenders will appear as opposed to the field being split in half for two consecutive nights of debate. And again, that is this evening. House Judiciary Democrats today took a big step in their Trump impeachment push as they set the ground rules for a formal committee inquiry. But Republicans laughed it off as a giant Instagram filter to hide how divided Democrats truly are on the question. The committee voted 24 to 17 to define the rules for future committee impeachment hearings. The committee is not writing articles of impeachment and nothing is going to the floor of the House right now. But the session still holds political consequence for both sides of the aisle. The resolution before us represents the necessary next step in our investigation of corruption, obstruction and abuse of power. So says committee chairman Jerry Nadler uh, in his opening statement. The vote allows members to show the impeachment eager base they are moving forward. But the push has also rattled some Democrats from more moderate districts, saying it's sucking the air out of all the good stuff we're doing. That's a quote from Representative Donna Shalala, Democrat out of Florida, who flipped her seat from Republican control last year. But Nadler has sought to clear the air on what his committee is actually doing with widespread confusion. Nadler said Thursday the panel is engaged in an investigation as to whether to launch an impeachment investigation into President Trump. He'd previously said House Democrats are pursuing an impeachment inquiry, a remark subsequently contradicted by Majority Leader Steny Hoyer, um, later released in a statement saying he had misunderstood the question and that he supported Nadler. In his opening statement Thursday, Nadler said some call this process an impeachment inquiry. Some call it an impeachment investigation. There is no legal difference between these terms, and I no longer care to argue about the nomenclature. Well, the Speaker of the House had similar difficulty in that at one point she simply uh, decided, after after having long expressed her skepticism about impeachment, urged Democrats to zero in on issues such as climate change, health care and economic uh, uh, policy instead. Last month, she was heckled by unhappy protesters at a dinner. She simply said uh, when speaking to the press earlier in the day, I'm not going to talk about it anymore. Well, a House Republican issued a double dog dare to Democrats on the Judiciary Committee, challenging them to call for a vote on the impeachment of the president. Representative Tom McClintock of California took issue with the House Democrats, who took a big step in their impeachment. The committee voted, as I mentioned, 24 to 17. Um, To clear confusion around all of this, McClintock was apparently fed up with the Democrats seemingly dancing around the issue of whether to actually pursue impeachment, arguing that they want the illusion of impeachment without the reality. If the majority wants to exercise the House's power of impeachment, all you got to do is ask the House to do so, McClintock said. All you have to do is ask the House... Uh, a, a direct um, question and authorize this committee to conduct an impeachment inquiry. That's all you have to do. Resolve that the House authorizes the Judiciary Committee to conduct an inquiry into impeachment of the president. It's that simple. 
I dare to you to do it. In fact, I double dog dare you, he went on to say. Have the House vote on this, um, those 18 words and then go at it. Why don't you do that? Well, they're not prepared to do just that just yet, but at least uh, I wouldn't necessarily even say a step forward, but an inching uh, in that direction earlier in the day. U.S. Attorney uh, Jesse Liu has recommended moving forward with charges against CNN contributor Andrew McCabe uh, as Justice Department rejects a uh, last-ditch appeal from the former top FBI official. McCabe, the former deputy and acting director of the FBI, appealed the decision of the U.S. Attorney for Washington all the way up to Jeffrey Rose, uh, Rosen, the deputy attorney general, but he rejected that request, according to a person familiar with the situation. The potential charges relate to the Department of Justice Inspector General's findings against him regarding misleading statements concerning a Hillary Clinton-related investigation. A source close to McCabe's legal team said they received an email from the Department of Justice which said the department rejected your appeal of the United States Attorney's Office decision in this matter. Any further inquiries should be directed to the United States Attorney's Office. McCabe spent 21 years with the FBI. He became the acting director in May of 2017 after President Trump fired former director James Comey. Last month, a source close to the process uh, said that McCabe had a target on his back because of the Justice Department Inspector General's findings. Then Attorney General Jeff Sessions fired McCabe in March of 2018 after the Inspector General find found rather he had repeatedly misstated his involvement in a leak to the Wall Street Journal regarding an FBI investigation into the Clinton Foundation. And the Inspector General for the Department of Housing and Urban Development said in a new report that investigators found no evidence of misconduct by Secretary Ben Carson concerning a controversial order for expensive furniture in late 2017. The watchdog completed the report on Wednesday after more than a year investigating whether Carson and his wife improperly tried to purchase a $31,000 dining set for his office as part of a costly makeover. The inspector general found that Carson left the matter of purchasing furniture to members of his staff to handle in consultation with his wife, who provided stylistic input after the department decided to purchase new furniture. We found no evidence indicating that either secretary or Mrs. Carson exerted improper influence on any departmental employee. In connection with the procurement, the report stated, we did not find sufficient evidence to substantiate allegations of misconduct on the part of Secretary Carson in connection with this procurement. Speaking on um, a Fox Business Network uh, of the report, Carson said it proves what he had been saying all along. I was so disgusted with that story because they try to claim that I want to buy expensive furniture while I'm trying to take money away from the poor people, he said. There's probably no one in Washington who cares less about furniture than I do. Well, coming up, we're going to talk with Charles Krismeyer. He's the author of Hearts of the Father, Leaving a Legacy That Lasts. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, and we'll be back in just a few moments. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. And we're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. 35 minutes after 4 o'clock is the time. Having some difficulty reaching my guest, Charles Krismeyer. Uh, Clark is continuing to make that effort, so we'll just press forward. Uh, once again, the uh, debates among the 10 um, Democratic presidential hopefuls uh, the, that remain standing continues, and that's uh, that's going to take place tonight. So you have the opportunity to hear them on a much smaller scale debate one another and for the first time uh, the top three contenders on the same debate stage. So that should be rather interesting. Well, there's a new book out um, that it tries to explain why Parkland happened. 
it, uh, it explains the failures of Broward County officials, and it's rather interesting. It's written by the father, Andrew Pollock, of one of the girls who was killed in that engagement. In the book, Why Meadow Died, um, his daughter perished in that shooting. Um, he reviews education policy and uh, attempts to explain how all of this happened, the failures that led up to the possibility for this to um, uh, to happen. There has been a long post-Parkland debate about gun control. It, um, uh, he argues, should have focused as much, or at least as much, on school safety and discipline. Well, Robert uh, Verbruggen, who reviews the book, says that in the book, Why Meadow Died, Andrew Pollock, whose daughter Meadow perished in that shooting, and education policy expert Max Eden, they explain in detail the warning signs that the shooter had given off since his childhood. They leave no doubt that if the uh, the uh, county had been sensible and had policies in place and even minimally competent employees, the shooting would not have happened. And they further demonstrate that Broward County's dis, uh, discipline, which was lax, um, perversely so, if they had treated, uh, uh, been treated as a model for the rest of the nation because it reduces suspicions, expulsions, and arrests, and thereby allegedly slows down the school-to-prison pipeline, we would have seen many, many more. Well, the shooter, uh, who we'll refer to as, does Robert uh, Verbruggen, as John Doe, to avoid publishing his name, came from difficult circumstances. He was born to a career criminal and drug addict. His adoptive parents effectively bought him by giving his birth mother's lawyer $50,000 to cover expenses and later adopted his half-brother as well. At the age of two, he threw a neighbor's four-month-old infant in a pool. At three, he bit his classmates enough to get kicked out of a private pre-K program. He was soon diagnosed with several cognitive difficulties, and in elementary school, he moved between normal and special ed classes as his um, I prefer the word typical and special ed classes as his teachers continued to document his aggression and sometimes needed to have him physically removed from class. One day, he watched his adoptive father die of a heart attack, and I, you know, I'm not sure what impact that would have on a young child. But nonetheless, in keeping with Broward's priorities and national pressures to avoid excluding children, uh, Doe went on uh, to the same middle school as all his peers, where his behavior became increasingly disturbing. He tortured animals. He showed images of uh, this behavior to his classmates. He threatened school staff. He punched holes in the walls at home when he lost his Xbox games. He ran into traffic during a fire drill. Uh, He was suspended repeatedly. He was even placed on escort-only status, meaning any time he left class, he'd be accompanied by security. Well, in Broward County, though, it's exceedingly difficult to move a child to a special school, even in such extreme cases. Schools have to go through a four- to six-month process of parent conferences, evaluations, and plans to improve. And here's the most maddening thing. Uh, Doe's teachers uh, did all of that, got him moved to Cross Creek, which is a small intensive school for students with exceptional needs, in February of 2014. The staff there were alarmed by his obsession with violence, guns, and gore. They recommended that his mother remove sharp objects from his home, uh, wrote a worried letter to his private psychiatrist in the hope his um, medications could be adjusted. Cross Creek is a K-12 through school, so he could have uh, stayed there for the remainder of his education unless he needed to be fully institutionalized. Well, he started behaving a little better around October, though, which proved enough to get him mainstreamed again the following year and sent a Marjorie, rather sent to Marjorie Stoneman Douglas as a sophomore. 
Well, shortly after he threatened to shoot up the school in an Instagram post, a woman who called the police was told that Doe had a First Amendment right to make such statements. School security quickly learned that they had to keep a constant eye on him. He wrote, I hate, and then an expletive um, referring to African-Americans on his backpack, was briefly suspended for drawing a swastika on a lunch table, brought dead animals and knives to school, started threatening an ex-girlfriend and a male friend of hers. Uh, There's some evidence he's repeatedly suspended without the suspensions being recorded properly, but he wasn't sent back to Cross Creek. Now, starting just days before his 18th birthday, uh, Doe threw several more red flags in the air. He viciously attacked a fellow student while using the N-word. Uh, this resulted not in an arrest, but in a new rule that Doe was no longer allowed to bring a backpack to school to make it harder for him to bring in weapons. Just a few days later, he, his adoptive mother was so troubled by his behavior, she called Youth Emergency Services to see if he should be institutionalized. Naturally, he was not. He told a classmate he'd been cutting himself and drinking gasoline, and his mother was advised to keep sharp objects away from him again. He wrote Kill in a notebook. When asked why, he explained that his mother had decided not to allow him to get an ID so he couldn't buy a gun. But his mother eventually relented, and through all of this, no official had managed to get Doe the kind of criminal or mental health record it would have um, taken in order for him to fail a background check. As a matter of policy, the school system deliberately avoided getting uh, police involved in student crimes. One rule allowed students to commit three misdemeanors a year before law enforcement was even an option. Arrests were optional for felonies, too. And beyond that, a lot of his misbehavior was reported to school staff but not recorded properly. Still, the police were also well aware of what was going on with Doe. Uh, They were called to his house 45 times, though some of these calls pertain to his brother. Once he became an adult, it got harder to send him back to Cross Creek if he didn't want to go. But still, there were efforts to do that. He avoided them by waiving his special education status and the protections that came with them. The threats continued, and eventually he was pushed out of Marjorie Stoneman Douglas without technically being expelled. He later tried to go back to Cross Creek, which uh, uh, could have happened quickly, but bureaucratic incompetence prevented that from happening. And again, we're talking about the book that was written by the father of one of the um, victims, along with an expert, Max Eden, who is an education policy expert. Well, as it uh, became clear he'd never graduate from high school, Doe, again the shooter at uh, Parkman, uh, let off yet another series of uh, threats, some of which made their way to law enforcement. A few months before the shooting, his adoptive mother, nearly 70 years old, passed away. He went to live with friends of the family. On the day of the shooting itself, even more incompetence and bad policies revealed themselves. When Doe approached the building, he walked through a gate that should have been locked. A school school safety monitor passed him, instantly knew it was a problem for Doe to be walking onto campus with a rifle bag, and yet neither intercepted him nor called a code red that would have instructed everybody to shelter in place with the doors locked rather than pour into the hallways, which is exactly what many students did when the fire alarm went off, apparently from gun smoke. Uh, That fire alarm, incidentally, was oversensitive and obsolete and should already have been replaced. No other adult called a cold red either. Against standard practice, the school's principal had decided no one could call cold red but him uh, to avoid false alarms that could bring bad PR. And the principal was uh, gone that day. Most notoriously, school resource officer Scott Peterson hid outside the building the entire time rather than confronting the shooter. Well, the shooting could have been stopped years before it started and could have played out differently. 
every step of the way, officials failed. And these failures were sure to result in a catastrophic event of some kind, if not necessarily a massacre. And at least when it came to the lax discipline policies, Broward County is no exception. Quite to the contrary, its decision to downplay or ignore teenagers' crimes on school property have been treated as a model for the rest of the nation, especially when it comes to reducing racial gaps in discipline and uh, arrests that often stem from gaps in misbehavior, not bias. The Obama administration pushed these policies on the entire nation through the Dear Colleague letter. The Trump administration has revoked the letter, though if, um, the school districts um, have uh, kept heading in that direction, whether the federal government twists their arms into it or not. Now, why Meadow died is a thorough, and this is a book that's been published, is a thorough, disturbing expose of the school district that inspired rave reviews from liberal education reformers who hate harsh discipline, uh, but failed to do what was necessary to help a demented young man or protect his peers. It should inspire parents nationwide to pay closer attention to what happens in their kids' schools and to fight to change that. And anyone involved in running a school district should hang on this um, this book's every word because, um, according to uh, one reviewer, it scratches the surface of the specific policies involved in and how badly they failed uh, in this situation. Whether reform efforts will succeed, though, is highly uncertain. Uh, Pollock's uh, own drive to remake the Broward County School Board failed, and the authorities featured in the book are, for the most part, still in charge in those same places, implementing the same policies. Why Meadow Died, it's a book worth reading. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back 50 minutes after 4 o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. My would-be guest has vanished. So we're just pressing on. If we do reach Charles Krismer, author of Hearts of the Father, we'll plug him in wherever we uh, happen to hear from him. But we'll, we're pressing on. I do want to mention that in the five o'clock hour, Justin Farrell will be my guest. He's a speaker, counselor. He's also an author. His latest book, God and Grandpa, Lessons Learned on the Road Trip of a Lifetime. Um, he, uh, with Better Dads, is uh, Hosting She's My Girl, He's My Dad, a one-day conference for daddies and daughters, fathers and daughters, uh, 12 years and up. You can learn more at betterdads.net, but he'll join me later in the 5 o'clock hour with more details. Also, I want to remind you, we are going to give away our final set of um, goodies from Stephen Curtis Chapman, his autobiography, as well as tickets to his Christmas concert that's coming up in the 5 o'clock hour. So, yay. Well, in an incredible answer to the prayers of thousands across the country, California's controversial AB 2943 has been withdrawn by the author. Assemblymember Evan Lowe says uh, the Assemblymember, I knew this was an emotionally charged issue, so I spent the past few months traveling up and down the state meeting with a wide variety of faith leaders. I was heartened by the conversations. Well, after meeting personally with pastors, professionals, counselors, former homosexuals who lead ministries to other uh, in the LGBT community, the assembly member decided to continue the dialogue beyond this legislative session with a hopeful eye toward the future. I share with you that despite the support the bill received in the assembly and Senate, I will not be sending AB 2943 to the governor this year, he concluded. 
Mr. Lowe's decision was uh, greeted with relief and gratitude uh, by the president of the California Family Council and with um, a significant amount of of surprise by those who have been looking on from some distance. Um, People of faith across California and around the nation care deeply about our family, friends, neighbors and co-workers who identify as LGBTQ, Keller said. AB 2943 would have tragically limited our ability to offer compassionate support related to sexual orientation and gender identity and even to preach Jesus' message of unconditional love and life transformation. Keller went on to thank Assemblymember Lowe for his unprecedented outreach to the faith community in response uh, to threat AB 2943 posed to their constitutionally protected First Amendment freedoms. We are inexpressibly grateful to Assemblymember Lowe for meeting personally with faith leaders uh, over the last several months and sincerely listening to our concerns, Keller continued. Today is also a testament to the courageous counselors, ministry leaders, pastors, and once gay individuals who bravely shared their personal stories, ensuring that these vital perspectives were not overlooked in the legislative process. Well, California Family Council helped lead a broad coalition of local, state, and national organizations and mobilized tens of thousands of Californians in expressing their concerns about the legislation. Uh, and as uh, mentioned, it has now been withdrawn by the sponsor. And this was a very long and arduous process. It has not come to a complete end, uh, but it certainly um, has ended for this year a uh, piece of legislation that could have gone to the governor's desk. In other news, I, in fact, started talking a bit about it yesterday. It was a Newsmax um, story about uh, Dr. Paul McHugh. Uh, He, in 1979, closed the sex change clinic at Johns Hopkins. And in the 80s, he testified against phony recovered memories, uh, and he hasn't yet given up. Now, as I mentioned, in 1979, he was a young man. In 2019, he's an older man. He's now 88 years old. And he's standing against what he calls psychiatry's crazes. You might have heard this joke, as I mentioned yesterday. A man in a car gets a call from his wife. Honey, be careful, she says. A car is going the wrong way on the highway. He replies, it's not just one car, it's hundreds of them. Well, that's a a joke that psychiatrist Dr. Paul McHugh, now 88, could uh, suggest places him in the driver's seat of the lone car facing the opposite direction. A professor at the Johns Hopkins School of Medicine and a tenacious skeptic of the crazes, as he put it, that periodically overtake his speciality, he's often served as psychiatry's most outspoken critic. Either he's crazy or all the other psychiatrists are. Well, the best known, the most controversial decision of his professional life is a newly relevant and recently reversed decision. In 1979, as psychiatrist-in-chief at Johns Hopkins Hospital, he shut down the gender identity clinic which performed sex change operations. In his view, the hospital had wasted scientific and technical resources and damaged our professional credibility by collaborating with madness rather than trying to study, cure, and ultimately prevent it, as he wrote in 2004. Well, in 2017, the clinic uh, was reopened as the Center for Transgender Health, performing what it now calls gender-affirming surgeries. Its medical office coordinator, Melissa Noyes, says the demand is massive. McHugh is again on the outs with his profession. He doesn't mind. I've been there before, he says, during an interview at his book-laden Baltimore, Maryland home in the leafy uh, Guilfoyle neighborhood abutting John Hopkins, where he still serves as a professor. Well, his contrarian roots run pretty deep. Uh, He was diminutive boy in the 40s when uh, psychoanalysis had popularized the notion of physical deficiencies, including short stature, 
produced inferiority complexes, especially for boys and men. He became a prime candidate for the experimental growth hormone therapies, raising to uh, uh, rather rising to meet the demand for um, anxious parents. But McHugh's father, who was a school teacher, decided against the treatments recommended for his son. Shortness wouldn't be the worst problem he'd have to face. The elder McHugh reasoned at the time, again in the 40s. As it turned out, the uh, animal-derived pituitary treatments were ineffective. The human-derived form sometimes carried the infections, uh, the infectious agents um, of, uh, I can't even pronounce the full name, but a Jacob disease, an incurable degenerative brain disorder, which made him uh, quite wary of other procedures currently being recommended. I, I know my life would have been easier if I had four or five more inches, McHugh, who now stands at five six, says. But his childhood experience taught him a lesson that helped make him a giant in his field. Sometimes psychiatry's cure is far worse than the disease. Well, he believes psychiatry's um, first order of business ought to be to determine whether a mental disorder is generated by something the patient has, a disease of the brain, something the patient is, uh, something the patient is rather overly. Uh, extroverted or cognitively supernormal, something a patient is doing, behavior like self-starvation or something a patient has encountered, a traumatic or otherwise disorienting experience. I came into psychiatry with the perception, he says, that it had not matured as a clinical science in which rational practices are directed by information on the causes and mechanisms of the disorders. Every other medical discipline has that, he said. He still regards psychiatry as badly in need of organizing principles. That's putting it mildly. Psychiatry has fallen under the sway of a dizzying number of crazes. Uh, Treatment has often been grotesque. Think frontal lobotomies, insulin shock therapy, primitive chemically induced seizure therapies. Psychiatric um, enthusiasm has also led to gross miscarriages of justice. In the 80s, McHugh became a leading opponent of so-called recovered memory therapy, in which psychoanalysis claimed to have discovered the latent source of patients' multiple personality disorder. McHugh believes multiple personality disorder is a phony ailment and recovering memories are um, a, a Greek word meaning brought on by the healer, implanted by the therapeutic process that, the, that purports to discover them. Well, given all this, does psychiatry have anything of value to offer? Well, he answered that question by saying, I think it really has helped demonstrate that mental illnesses are real things uh, that need to be studied and can be treated, he says. I think that's a tremendous achievement. He argues that treatment of returning soldiers for the liberally applied PTSD diagnosis is another example of uh, this same practice of um, memories being recovered. Such diagnoses are far rarer among Israel Defense Force veterans whose experience um, includes plenty of traumas. He says Israelis know um, that you can get a terrible psychological reaction out of a traumatic val- uh, battle, and they do take the soldiers out and they tell them the following. This is perfectly normal. You need to be out of battle for a while. Uh, don't think that this is a disease that's going to hurt you. This is like grief. You're going to get over it. It's normal. And within a week, after a little rest, we're going to put you back with your comrades and you're going to get back to work, and they do it. So he's contrasting the way we respond as to the Israelis. By contrast, American psychiatrists say you've had a permanent wound, you're going to be on disability forever, and this country has mistreated you by putting you in a false war. They make chronic invalids, rather, of them. That's the difference. Well, McHugh graduated from Harvard Medical School in 1957 during his psychiatry internship at Boston's Peter Bent uh, Brigham Hospital, now part of Brigham and Women's Hospital, 
the chief of psychiatry. He served in that capacity for quite some time. Well, as I mentioned, the article appears in Newsmax, and it's uh, rather interesting as he goes on to discuss um, how easily psychiatry is influenced by um, certain, um, what does he call them? That's the word he uses. Uh, Crazes, as he calls it, without having um, organizing principles. And he is continuing that fight at 88 and stands as um, sort of a bulwark against some of these processes. All right, we need to take a break for news and traffic here at the top of the hour. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. When we come back, we'll give away our Stephen Curtis Chapman tickets. Uh, We'll also talk to Justin Farrell, so stay with us. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show. Seven minutes after five o'clock is our time. Portions of today's program are brought to you by Zero Res. What a beautiful day today. I think we reached 80 degrees, maybe 81. I actually wore white pants after Labor Day, and I don't care. But only today, because I knew it was going to be hot. Had lunch with my brother. It was a good day. Today was a good day. Uh, Anyway, we're going to give away a um, copy of Between Heaven and the Real World. It's Stephen Curtis Chapman's autobiography. And as if that weren't enough, we're going to give away two tickets to Stephen Curtis Chapman's Acoustic Christmas Concert. That's coming up Sunday, December 15th, 7 o'clock p.m., Rolling Hills Church in Tualatin. Great musician, great songwriter. It's going to be a great concert, and it is an acoustic Christmas concert. And uh, this is the final giveaway for this week, so we want to give that away to Clark. Which number should we, uh, should we choose? Clark says caller number 5, 800-845-2162, 845 2162. Again, a copy of Stephen Curtis Chapman's autobiography, Between Heaven and the Real World, and two tickets to Stephen Curtis Chapman's acoustic Christmas concert, Sunday, December 15th, 7 o'clock p.m., Rolling Hills Church in Tualatin. So uh, it's going to be a great concert. So caller number five, this one's for you. Well, when Camille Paglia was an obnoxious adolescent of 15, she had what she describes as this huge fight with a nun in upstate New York. Miss Paglia, now 72, remembers the incident with a clarity that suggests a lifetime of unresolved umbrage. We were released from school for religious instruction on Thursday afternoon, she says. And teen Camille posed a question. If God is infinitely forgiving, I asked the nun, is it possible that at some point in the future he'll forgive Satan, the nun, a doctrine a doctrinaire Irish Catholic without any of the pagan residue of Miss Paglia's Italian culture turned beet red. She was so enraged that she condemned me in front of everybody for even asking the question, end quote. Well, that was the day Miss Paglia left the Catholic Church. It was the last time she asked an awkward, uh, rather was not, the last time she asked an awkward question, even incendiary questions. Such provocations are the stock and trade of this most free-spirited of America's public intellectuals. Well, we're talking about a feminist capitalist professor who's currently under fire. Uh, students who demand her firing uh, argue um, that, you know, she's gone too far. But Camille Paglia is arguing that uh, they take prosperity for granted, are socially underdeveloped and know little about Western history. Ms. Paglia is a professor of humanities and media studies at the University of the Arts in Philadelphia, where she's been a tenured and occasionally embattled faculty member since 84 This April, um, mutinous students demanded her firing because you cannot tolerate a professor who says things that uh, you don't like. 
uh, over public comments she made that were not wholly sympathetic to the Me Too movement, as well as for an interview with the Weekly Standard that they called transphobic. That denunciation, with its indignant dogmatism, is particularly slapstick since Ms. Paglia describes herself as transgender. While the protests were unsuccessful, largely thanks to a robust defense of Ms. Paglia by the university's president, um, artists over the centuries, he wrote in an open letter to the students, have suffered censorship and even persecution for the expression of their beliefs through their work. My answer is simple. Not now. Not you arts. Now, it's interesting. One wonders if he would have stood behind her if she was on the other side of the ideological continuum. But nonetheless, over lunch at a grief rest, Greek restaurant. Well, it did produce some grief. Miss Paglia tells um, uh, her interviewer that she belongs to the pro-sex free speech wing of feminism, which she sees has its heyday in the 90s. That was the decade in which she herself emerged from academic obscurity. In 1990, she published her first book, um, an erudite yet uh, pugnacious account of the competing roles of males and females in Western civilization. It was rejected. She never tries tires of saying by seven publishers and five agents before Yale University Press picked it up. The book vaulted her into the American imagination as a blue stocking gone deliciously rogue. Uh, the same year, she published an op-ed article lauding the pop singer Madonna as a true feminist who exposes the puritanism and suffocating ideology of American feminism. Well, it goes on from there. Well, she laments that the um, current generation of young people has gone off the rails. As a teacher of undergraduates, she despairs of how bad it is for young people um, filled with fears to be raised in this kind of a climate where personal responsibility isn't spoken of. Since her own youth, she says, college students have devolved from rebels into skittish (laughs) supplicants, petitioning people in authority to protect them from real life. Young adults are encouraged to look for substitute parent figures on campus, which is what my generation rebelled against in college, she says. We threw that whole um, uh, in loco parentis thing out, she is quoted as saying. There's an undeniable irony in hearing a septuagenarian uh, from a generation that was famously preoccupied with youth deplore the state of today's young people. Ms. Paglia says our parents were the World War II generation. She says, so they had a sense of real uh, reality about life. Children now are raised in a far more affluent period. Even people without much money have cell phones, televisions, access to cars. They're raised in an air-conditioned environment. I can still remember when there was no air conditioning. She shudders as she sips uh, her beverage, adding uh, that she suffered horribly in the heat. Everything is so easy now, Ms. Paglia continues. The stores are so plentifully supplied. You just go in and buy fruits and vegetables from all over the world. Undergrads who've studied neither economics nor history have a sense that this is the way life has always been because they've never been exposed to history. They have no idea that these are recent attainments that come from a very specific economic system. Capitalism, she continues, has produced this cornucopia around us, but the young seem to believe in having the government run everything and that the private companies that are doing things for profit around them and supplying them with goods will somehow exist forever. Ms. Paglia asks um, uh, that um, it was, uh, or rather makes note, that it was because of capitalism that her forebears escaped the crushing poverty of rural Italy, immigrating to Indicott, New York, to work and the Endicott-Johnson shoe factories, whose vast buildings, tanning pools, and smokestacks dominated her childhood. Although she doesn't use the phrase herself, you can uh, call her a feminist capitalist. 
Uh, she says, while I believe that boom and bust capitalism is inherently Darwinian and requires moderate regulation for the long term greater good, she says, I insist that capitalism has produced the glorious um, emancipation of women. They can now support themselves and live on their own and no longer must humiliatingly depend on father or husband. So why do young women feel victimized? Miss Paglia cites the near extinction of body language among the young and its impact on relations on campus. The loss of body language starts in middle and high school, where there's total absorption in social media and projected images on Instagram and so on. So they don't know how to read each other physically. When they get to college, this social deficiency is exacerbated by the effects of that stupid law, the National Minimum Drinking Age Act, that was passed in 1984. It affected a nationwide ban on alcohol sales to adults to 21. And she goes on from there. I won't read all of it, but it's rather interesting to hear this feminist capitalist a title that's been imposed on her, but does describe her worldview, um, lamenting as a 70-plus-year-old, 72-year-old, lamenting the younger generation and their lack of regard for um, the prosperity they enjoy, their lack of familiarity with history and what came before. I found it rather interesting, although she and I would probably agree disagree on just about everything else. It is rather interesting that there was an effort... Um, to get her ousted from university for not going far enough in the estimation of students who need to be protected by pseudo-parent figures. Well, all six crew members on the scuba diving boat were asleep when it caught fire off the coast of California last week, killing 34. That's according to federal investigators announcing earlier today uh, their findings on the California dive boat. We'll tell you more about that when we come back from the break. Also coming up in this hour... We'll talk with Justin Farrell. He's a speaker, a counselor, and an author. Better Dads is hosting She's My Girl, He's My Dad. It's a one-day conference coming up later this month. We'll tell you all about it when he joins us in just a bit. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back 21 minutes after 5 o'clock. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Justin Farrell will join us. If you're a dad, if you're a daughter, if you're a mom with a dad and a daughter in the household, you're going to want to listen up because there's an event coming up on the 28th, 8.30 a.m. to 2.30 p.m. They can go to the event, spend a great uh, time together and uh, be back in the afternoon. So anyway, that's coming up with Justin Farrell in just a, just a segment from now. Well, as I mentioned, California, the dive boat uh, crew that was overseeing this tragedy that took place on Labor Day, apparently they didn't have required watch keepers Uh, When the fire broke out, now I'm not sure it would have made all that much difference, but nonetheless, all six crew members on the scuba dive boat were asleep when it caught fire off the coast of California last week. Thirty four people were killed. Federal investigators announced uh, earlier today the conception was required to have a crew member keep watch at night in a two page preliminary report. Only two pages. And it is preliminary. The National Transportation Safety Board said five crew members were asleep in their quarters behind the wheelhouse on the second deck. And another uh, below deck when the fire broke out. The victims, 33 passengers, one crew member, died of smoke inhalation trapped below the uh, raging blaze, which just seeing those images was very difficult. The report comes as investigators are seeking to determine the cause and try to recover the wreckage of the conception from the bottom of the sea uh, with ongoing criminal probes conducted by the FBI, the Coast Guard, the U.S. Attorney's Office. The Coast Guard has issued additional safety recommendations in the wake of that tragedy, limiting, for example, the unsupervised charging of lithium-ion batteries and the use of power strips and extension cords 
recommendations. They're also suggesting owners and operators of vessels review emergency duties with the crew, identify emergency escapes, which this apparently did not have sufficient uh, escapes for in case of emergency. Check all firefighting and life-saving equipment on board. Look at the condition of passenger accommodation spaces for unsafe uh, practices or other hazardous arrangements. So they're moving forward uh, with additional um, answers. And they did recover, from what I understand, the final uh, body from the wreckage of that event. Well, in March of 2007, Israel discovered a secret that threatened to forever alter the balance of power in the Middle East. North Korea was helping Syria construct a nuclear reactor in the uh, patch of desert along the Euphrates River in the northeastern part of the country. Well, the reactor was a copy of North Korea's Yongbyon uh, reactor, and Israeli intelligence quickly learned that it was just a few months away from being activated and becoming hot, as they say, after which a military strike would be almost impossible. Well, Ehud Olmert, the prime minister at that time, decided to share the intelligence with President George W. Bush, and he asked the U.S. president to attack the reactor. Well, after three months of deliberations, uh, President Bush decided not to uh, use military force. Instead, he proposed a diplomatic solution, which Olmert rejected. So on September 6th, 2007, now keep in mind, it was in March of 2007, it was discovered, the Israeli Air Force bombed and destroyed that reactor. What happened 12 years ago in Syria was similar to the way Israel in 1981 destroyed uh, Ozarak, the nuclear reactor that uh, former Iraqi President Saddam Hussein was building near Baghdad. Then, too, Israel warned the world of what was uh, happening if Saddam or what would happen if he uh, wasn't stopped. And when nothing changed, it decided to take military action itself. Well, these two historical precedents are important to keep in mind as Iran takes its initial steps away from the um, uh, so-called agreement, the controversial nuclear deal brokered by the Obama administration in 2015. Iran's violations have so far been limited on the one hand, but symbolic on the other. Now, the regime has surpassed the amount of enriched uranium it's allowed to keep on hand, and it's also upped the purity levels of its enrichment, exceeding the 3.67% limit under that deal. It already claims to have attained enrichment levels of 4.5%. That's unverified, but that's what the claim is. Now, this is still far below the 90% level needed to produce a nuclear weapon, but it has is put Israel on edge. After years of Iran abiding by the deal and holding back from breaking out uh, to a nuclear bomb, Iran's violations might still uh, seem small, but they could be an indication of more to come. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, at least as long as he remains Prime Minister, made his country's position clear. Israel, he said, will not allow Iran, which calls for our destruction, to entrench on our border. We will do everything to prevent it from attaining nuclear weapons. Now, everyone says it's intolerable for Iran to have nuclear weapons. Everyone says we will not tolerate nuclear weapons in Iran. But Israel is prepared to actually prevent them from developing them. Uh, For the time being, Israel seems focused on diplomacy with a double objective, get Europe to impose sanctions on Iran and recognize that the Ayatollahs cannot be trusted. At the same time, they also want to want the support of the Trump administration's efforts to get Iran to come back to the table to negotiate a a new deal of some sort uh, that might be better than the deal that the United States withdrew from. Uh, what would push Israel over the edge and get the uh, the country to approve an attack against Iran and possibly its proxies um, is uh, really a couple of things. On the one hand, there, there are two precedents to draw on. 
Syria's nuclear reactor in 2007 and Iraq's reactor in 1981. In both of those cases, the reactors were close to being activated and Israel felt it couldn't risk a strike once they were hot due to the potential dispersion of radioactive materials throughout the the uh, uh, respective countries. With Iran, Israel has yet to reach that stage in both 2010 and 2012. Netanyahu was uh, close to attacking Iran, but decided to hold off due to opposition from his security chiefs and fear in the later case that um, it would be seen as interfering in the U.S. presidential elections. Well, back then, the assessment was that it would take the Iranians six to 12 months before they had an operational crude nuclear device and another year before they could install a nuclear warhead and one of their long-range ballistic missiles. Well, in 2015, nuclear deal, that changed those timelines, but with Iran now violating the pact, Israel again has to ready its military for a possible attack sometime in the coming years, if not sooner. Well, Israel could feel compelled to act in a number of scenarios. The most obvious, we're being told, would be if Iran decides to increase the enrichment of uranium to military-grade levels and break out to a bomb, Uh, If that were to happen, Israel might try, as it um, unsuccessfully did in 2007, to get the United States to act. But if necessary, Jerusalem would likely go it alone. As a result, uh, the defense um, officials there predict that Iran won't make such an obvious and blatant jump. Instead, according to intelligence assessments there, Iran will continue to make small incremental violations so as not to provoke Israel or the United States, knowing that Israel, if not the United States, is fully prepared to act. This will mean a longer process, which could culminate in a number of years and after diplomacy has failed in Israeli action. Another option would be for Iran to openly attack Israel, and this could involve downing an Israeli airplane somewhere in the region or sinking an Israeli cargo or naval vessel. Israeli intelligence officials believe that a direct Iranian attack against Israel is unlikely. What would more likely happen, they say, would be Iran attacking Israel via one of the proxies it funds and arms along Israel's border, Hezbollah in Lebanon, Hamas, and Islamic Jihad in the Gaza Strip. Well, the bigger question, though, is whether Israel is even capable of destroying Iran's nuclear program. In both Syria and in Iraq, the nuclear program consisted of one key facility, which, when destroyed, basically meant the end of their program. In Iran, however, there are half a dozen important facilities, many of them Um, buried underground in bunkers protected by reinforced concrete and steel. Iran has apparently learned the lessons of Syria and Iraq. Nevertheless, Israel's military planners are confident that they have the ability to cause sufficient damage to Iran's nuclear program. A strike uh, by the IDF, the Israeli Defense Forces, would set the Iranians back by a couple of years, although it wouldn't completely destroy their capability. And that's where things stand at this point in terms of the future conflict that's ongoing between Israel and Iran. Meanwhile, there's an effort to curtail China's influence in the United Nations. It's uh, United Nations, rather. Chinese influence is on the rise within the U.N. system. Um, the director general uh, of the Food and Agriculture Organization this month is from China, raising a number of Chinese nationals, uh, leading a U.N. specialized agency to four, And the trend is concerning here in the U.S. because China is not a benign force internationally. It's seeking to shift the values, programs and policies of the U.N. in ways that benefit Chinese priorities and ideology, as one would expect a nation to do. And that um, undermines the values and practices that have underpinned the international system for decades. And their capacity to wield that kind of influence 
is only increasing. A spate of recent news articles highlighting their influence in the U.N. system commonly attributes Beijing's ascension to a U.S. retreat from the international leadership under the president. Yet the expansion of their influence in the U.N. system isn't a new phenomenon, nor is it solely attributed to the current U.S. administration. But another international uh, concern on the horizon. All right, coming up, we're going to talk with Justin Farrell. He's a speaker, counselor, and author. And most importantly, he's going to be a presenter at the She's My Girl, He's My Dad one-day conference. Details up next. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. I think it's fair to say that the most significant relationship I had in my formative years growing up as a young girl was the relationship I had with my father. I grew up in an intact family. I had a great relationship with my mother, but there was something about that relationship between father and daughter that made all the difference in my life. And even today, as I look back over my childhood, I can't help but reflect at how important my father, who's now passed away, Um, was to me then and is to me now, and how his influence shaped so much of uh, my life and character. Well, there's an event coming up for fathers and daughters that makes that point. In fact, we're talking about Better Dads, and they're uh, hosting She's My Girl, He's My Dad. It's a one-day conference coming up on the 28th. And here to talk with us about that is Justin Farrell. He is a speaker, a counselor, and author. In fact, he's the author of God and Grandpa, Lessons Learned on the Road Trip of a Lifetime, to talk about this event to which you are invited if you are a dad or if you are a daughter, and uh, the two of you desire to have a stronger relationship with one another. Justin, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Well, I am so thrilled at the work that you all are doing in bringing the hearts of fathers and daughters together. Tell us about this event that's coming up on the 28th. Uh, we're really excited um, to to uh, bring this event back and, and really spend uh, just a day uh, with dads and daughters getting a chance to connect. Um, it's We've kind of designed this event. It's for daughters who are, are 12 and older, um, and we've had uh, our, kind of our you know, range averaging uh, in the teenage years, but we've had um, women in their 20s and 30s who have come to these with their with their dads in the past. And, you know, it's nice because um, the daddy-daughter dances are fantastic. Mm. I love going to those with my daughter, but, you know, she's 11 now, and as we went this last year, there was, there was a couple girls that were 13 or 14 or so, but I'm, I'm kind of realizing that my uh, my window for attending the, the daddy-daughter dances are, is kind of starting to come to a close. So, before I start tearing up here talking about that and thinking about that reality in a few years, um, we've kind of designed our event for the next step because it's pretty common for dads and daughters to start to separate a little bit as girls get a little bit older. Dads get a little bit confused and dealing with an adolescent yeah. girl is, is a foreign foreign language or foreign territory for dads. And, and sadly, a lot of dads pull away. And we want to try and create an event where they can actually come together and spend a day, whether they're relationship is great, whether it's been a little bit rocky um, or whether it's been really rocky. We've tried to create this so that there's there's something for um, for dads and daughters at any stage of their relationship. Mm. Now, uh, describe for us what the day is like. It starts at about 830 in the morning, goes to about 230. It includes a lunch. What is this day going to be like for dad and daughter? So they'll come in together. Um, and the first we do, we have a, a series of, of uh, kind of breakout sessions, if you will. So there's times the first thing in the morning, the dads and daughters meet together. Um, my partner for the event is uh, also author and speaker Rick Johnson. He he leads it off and he start he he kind of sets the tone for the day. Why are we there? Why is the father daughter relationship so special? What makes it so special? 
um, and kind of as a, a way to help people understand like, hey, this is why we're being really intentional about uh, really treasuring this relationship. And then um, through, you know, throughout the, the, the rest of the morning and uh, into the afternoon, there's some breakout sessions. So then after that, I, I break out with the girls and we talk a little bit about, about self-esteem. We talk about um, kind of giving some things from, from their dad's perspective, why, um, why things are a little bit challenging for dads at this time and, and, and ways to help them understand where their dads are coming from. And while that's happening, Rick's talking to the dads, kind of giving them the perspective of here's why, here's some things that, that are helpful for why your, why your daughters might be struggling. So we kind of, we meet with them both, uh, individually. And then at various times we'll come back together and we'll do some, um, group activities that are designed to, um, to just improve communication, to help each other understand where they're at and, and why they might misfire and misconnect with each other from time to time. Um, and, you know, there's some parts where we're encouraging them to um, snap a selfie and put it up on their social media because we know mm-hmm. that, that's, that that's such a huge part of, of uh, kids' lives, adults too, but especially for kids yeah. to try and make it something like, hey, we're recognizing that we're taking the time here together to really strengthen our relationship. Um, and then in the afternoon, it's, it's very similar. We have a breakout session where I, I talk to the dads and then there's another a woman who we have come in uh, and speaks to the daughters. And then at the end is kind of the culmination that, that really brings it home. And, and it's the father-daughter blessing. And we use that language um, from both from a Christian perspective, but also for people who aren't Christian. It's meant to be a father's opportunity to, to share powerful words to his daughter, to speak directly to her heart. Um, so some people ask when we talk about the blessing, well, is this only for Christians? And, and not necessarily. Um, it really is for something where we're just giving dads an opportunity to speak truth. Rick models that on stage with his daughter, very powerful event where he tells her that he loves her and, and how much he cares for her and, and some, you know, some individualized things that we encourage dads to kind of fill in their own blanks. Um, the dads present their, their, their daughters with a, with a rose. Um, they hug and pretty much everybody's crying at that point. Mm. And it's, it's, it's definitely the, the, a great kind of sending almost like a benediction type thing where we're kind of sending them with that memory that, Hey, regardless of how things were good, bad, or in between when you came in here, as you leave this place, remember some of these things that you talked about, remember this connection that you felt uh, together as you, as you, as you came here and, and, and hopefully strengthened your relationship. Oh, that is so sweet. I know that when I had the opportunity, the rare opportunity to have my father's undivided attention, that that made the most impact uh, on me. For a father who has multiple daughters, what do you recommend? We usually recommend that you bring your oldest daughter first. Or um, if, if uh, you know, ske- with scheduling things, I know sometimes with sports and, and there's a lot of conflicts, if, if one daughter, you know, their schedule doesn't, uh, doesn't allow for them to make it, then, then bringing your other daughter would work out. But usually bring the oldest daughter so that way next year you can bring, bring your next daughter. And the reason why we do that, because we've had dads before ask, well, can I just bring both of my daughters? And, and to do that would take away from some of that time, like you're mm-hmm. talking about, Georgine, that, that just that individual one-on-one attention, you know, is just is amazingly powerful. I see that every day in my practice as a therapist about the, the impact that it can make when you're intentionally spending time with, with a person, whether it be for, a, you know, with an adult or, or a child and how powerful that can be. And so that's why, that's why we want it. We, we, we love it when dads have multiple daughters. We think that that's amazing. And hopefully they'll take the skills that they learn um, and be able to use it in their relationship with their other daughters, but that they'll really intentionally be looking at it for something that they would bring their, you know, the, the, the younger daughter to in, in, the, in following years. 
Now, we're talking about the event. Uh, it's called She's My Girl, He's My Dad. It's a one-day conference, 8.30 a.m. to 2.30 p.m. at Camp Whittacombe. That's on September the 28th. The fathers and daughters, 12 years old and up. You can find out more about that at betterdads.net. And I want to encourage you uh, to do that. Why is it so significant? Uh, I, my dad and I only had one date where it was just he and I over dinner. That that is one of the most significant events of my of my life. What is it about the relationship between a father and a daughter that resonates so much in the heart of a young girl? Um, I, I think that it's that there's there's a, a dad shaped hole in in every girl's heart. I'd say in every person's heart, but but when we're talking specifically about dads and daughters, um, that there's a hole that only a dad can fill, mm-hmm. um, and and that isn't necessarily a biological father, right? I mean, for 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 a lot of people it is, but for a lot of people it wasn't for for various reasons. And there's just a special place that that uh, that dads, stepdads, grandpas, you know, father figures um, can really fill in a young girl's life. That that's, that shows them that they love them, that they care about them, um, that they're there to protect them. All the different things that that males tend to naturally that, that they're kind of bio- biologically wired to do. Um, and it's it's different than than the role that a mother plays. Not better, not worse. It's just it's different. It's and different. So I think when you really take some time to invest in those in those relationships. Um, because there's some confusion, like I mentioned earlier, with dads and daughters uh, during the adolescent years. It kind of allows a girl to feel like, wow, this is pretty special that my dad's taking this time to, you know, we're not, he's not working, he's not, you know, we're not doing something else, but we're just focusing on each other, especially if there's, you know, multiple kids or anything like There's just something I, I, I can't really explain it, Georgine, other than there's just kind of something magic that happens yeah. when you've got two people who just spend that un, uninterrupted time together, especially with a dad and a daughter. Absolutely. Now, some of the subjects that will be covered, the power of the father-daughter bond, understanding her, and what your dad can't tell you. As we mentioned earlier, that there are points at which the dads meet together and the girls meet together. Um, there's communicating effectively. How do you talk to one another? Providing and protecting dangers that she will face. That's something dads, I'm certain, would want to have some insight into. And as you mentioned, the father blessing. All of this is going to take place on September 28th at Camp Withicombe. That's 8.30 a.m. to 2.30, so there's plenty of time for the rest of the day. There's going to be lunch uh, involved as well. We're talking about She's My Girl, He's My Dad, the one-day conference. And you can find out more about this event at betterdads.net. And again, this is for fathers and daughters 12 years old and up. And it's recommended that dads bring one daughter at a time uh, for this very, very special um, day. Justin, I so appreciate the work that you all are doing in, in helping to knit fathers and daughters' hearts together and uh, look forward to hearing great stories about how um, how families were impacted and just blessed by this uh, this weekend. Well, thank you so much. I, I appreciate the time and, and uh, we're looking forward to it. Thank you, Justin. Bye-bye. Yeah. Again, Bye. Justin Farrell is a speaker, counselor, and author of God and Grandpa, Lessons Learned on the Road Trip of a Lifetime. Better Dads, She's My Girl, He's My Dad, one-day conference coming up on the 28th, 8.30 a.m. to 2.30. For details, betterdads.net. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in a moment to wrap things up. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Welcome back. You're listening to the final segment of the Georgine Rice Show. Well, tonight, of course, is the uh, uh, the third, I think it's the third Democratic um, uh, challengers debate. And there are only 10 of them on the stage this time around, which makes it a little easier to get to know them. It's a three-hour marathon, if you will. But with only 10 candidates, you actually have an opportunity for them to speak their mind a bit more thoroughly than before. There have been lots of complaints about how 
the numbers were whittled down. But the fact is, these are 10 who have uh, demonstrated at least to this point that they have the strongest support at this point. Uh, In the next debate, I know there's at least one candidate who isn't on the stage tonight that will be there next time around. So we don't know what will happen for the October debate. But for tonight, that's what's uh, that's what's happening. So you might want to check that out. Again, this might be a little easier to uh, to listen to because there are only 10 candidates. And this is the first time that all of the uh, at least the three primary top contenders are going to be on the same debate stage. So this is the evening to do that. You can check that out um, this evening. Also, America is um, in the middle of a great spiritual battle, so say some evangelical leaders who held meetings with Saudi uh, crown prince on the eve of 9-11. Now, was the date all that significant? Um, he says our weapons are spiritual and certainly not of any other kind. But uh, the delegation included evangelical public relations executive Johnny Moore, who serves as a commissioner on the U.S. Commission on International Religious Freedom and is a spokesperson for evangelical leaders who've informally engaged in the uh, engaged with rather the Trump administration. So this represents a branch of evangelicalism. Moore is also president of the Congress of Christian Leaders. Well, the trip marked his third time visiting Saudi Arabia in the last year. He told the Christian Post that most of the delegation arrived in the kingdom on Sunday and left on Thursday. He said that the days were packed with meetings and trips. He detailed that the crown prince devoted much of his Tuesday afternoon uh, to the meeting with the delegation. He said the fact that the meetings were held on the week of the anniversary of 9-11 took the conversation to a very different level. No terrorist can sleep easy at night any longer in the kingdom of Saudi Arabia, he said. This is not a place like it was in 2001. Um, uh, where they thrived under the noses of a lot of people. A figure like uh, Al-Qaeda founder Osama bin Laden could have arisen. That's his assessment of what's happening there as an evangelical visiting the kingdom. Now, whether or not that would agree with the intelligence community is another matter. But he went on to say that when you talk to the young Saudi leaders, uh, they take it very personally. He added, they uh, say that uh, bin Laden not only hijacked their religion in the name of God, but they also said they're not going to let him win in the war by destroying their future. Um, Rosenberg said in a statement that the delegation is encouraged that the that senators Todd Young and Angus King visited Saudi Arabia this week as well, met with the crown prince. However, he voiced disappointment that they were the only two senators that had traveled uh, in 2019. Now, of course, there's the controversy with the Washington Post journalist that has been a hindrance in all of this as well. Saudi Arabia is one of America's most important strategic allies in the war against radical Islamic terrorism, Rosenberg went on to say, and encountering the rising Iranian uh, threat. Yes, there are significant challenges in the U.S.-Saudi relationship, but we urge more senators to come see the sweeping and positive reforms the crown prince is making and ask him candid questions directly rather than sniping at him from Washington. Well, according to Moore, there has been a seismic shift in the religious freedom discussion taking place over the last year in the Sunni-majority kingdom. He pointed to a four-day conference with over 1,200 top Islamic scholars held earlier this year by the Muslim World League. The conference resulted in the uh, Mecca Charter promoting ideas of tolerance, moderation, diversity, and coexistence. He added that the wheels are uh, on the road when it comes to the diversification of the Saudi economy from a reform perspective, and that there are many economic barriers on institutional, political, and ideological levels that are falling down quickly. He expressed optimism in the fact that reports have indicated that the kingdom is going to announce new tourism visas. Why does that matter? Well, because the kingdom has been closed off and uh, modernization and reform require openness in their discussion 
Uh, Mr. Moore said that he and the other evangelicals pressed for certain laws and policies to be changed. It was a very substantive discussion. It was so substantive that we can't even share the vast majority of what we talked about. And he went on to add that he didn't want to unveil publicly finite details of a private conversation. Uh, He did say they were candid, realistic, and they were patient. He also praised the Saudi Vision 2030 reform uh, agenda. Uh, Why have um, I come three times, he posited. I do feel like things are moving forward and moving forward quickly. If in the end they only accomplish half or a third of what uh, is proposed in that vision of reforms, the kingdom will be unrecognizable and the region will be unrecognizable as well. We met a lot of people that are instituting the reforms on the uh, managerial level. I think they're going to achieve a lot more than that. I think they're going to get a lot done, end quote. Well, despite its efforts at reform, Saudi Arabia took heat from religious freedom advocates this spring after reports of a mass execution of Shia clerics. Moore said that Saudi treatment of Shias was among the many things that they uh, discussed during their time together. We talked a lot about those types of questions I've always been a bit more sympathetic to the national security question as it relates to the way the Iranians use religion as a shield for some of their activities in the region. We try to take a nuanced view while not wavering at all from our commitment to human rights and religious freedom. Now, it's interesting. We don't have a list of who the delegates were as part of this, and it seems that while they're talking uh, policy as religious leaders, it's sort of an, an interesting consideration what the purpose of the meeting was and what role they might play in actually influencing what happens or to what degree the effort is to uh, sort of a PR uh, effort on the part of of the Saudi crown prince. But in any uh, event, a rather interesting uh, meeting that took place during the week of 9-11, which according to at least two attendees shaped to some degree uh, the tenor of those uh, those conversations. We'll try to get more details and follow uh, the story should it develop. Uh, with a with further trips or further details about what happened during uh, the trip that just concluded. Well, tomorrow is um, Friday, and we're going to do a traditional fun Friday program, so we're looking forward to that. We'll take a look at the lighter side of the news. Uh, we will, however, com- cover some of the uh, news from over the evening. Of course, tonight is the third uh, debate among Democratic presidential hopefuls. There are 10 Democrats that are going to square off in this third primary debate. This is the first opportunity Elizabeth Warren and former Vice President Joe Biden, for example, are going to share the same platform. And there's lots of speculation as to whether or not she will go after him uh, aggressively or um, just what the, the feeling in the room might be. She, in a poll, as I mentioned earlier in the program, is statistically tied with the former vice president at this point and is positioned to overtake him. Uh, the former vice president's performance is very significant if he's significant, if he's going to maintain his position. He did uh, reject the notion that he is the moderate, uh, which is the one distinguishing characteristic that sets him apart from some of his other primary opponents. So it'll be interesting to see if he uh, makes an effort to move further to the left now that the number has been whittled down, at least in this debate, to 10. And all of that will take place this evening. Uh, You might want to check that out, and we'll cover a little bit of that um, as well. I also want to remind you, if you're interested in uh, learning more details about the upcoming father-daughter event that's on the 28th of September, that's at Camp Withicombe right here in Clackamas County. It's She's My Girl, He's My Dad. It's a one-day conference, 8.30 a.m. to 2.30 p.m. It's sponsored by Better Dads. And you are invited to learn more and to participate. They're encouraging dads to bring daughters 12 years old and uh, older, yeah, 12 and older, uh, and to bring one daughter at a time in order for each each girl to get the time and attention she deserves in a setting like this one. Again, Better Dads 
BetterDads.net for more details. BetterDads.net. I want to thank James Blinn for producing today's program, Clark Hilton for engineering, and thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Hope to uh, see you tomorrow, well, you know, virtually, uh, when we lighten up. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G. Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ.